May 1st marks the annual holiday International Workers' Day, often referred to as May Day. And this month is part of the 89th anniversary of the Elizabethan rayon plant strikes, which happened just down the road from us here at the Reese Museum. So we thought we'd bring you a story about work and about a lesser-known part of labor history in Appalachia. Welcome to Recollections. So this would be, of course, one way of advertising, you know, so many more people smoked and used matches and such at that time. I'm in the collections at the Reese Museum with ETSU professor Dr. Marie Tedesco, and we're looking at a small 1950s matchbook. Like most matchbooks from the mid-20th century, it has an advertisement printed on the front and back. Oh, that's pretty racy, actually. <laughs> okay, so a reel of yarn with a woman who may or may not have clothing on. That's left to the imagination, right? On the back, there's an illustration of a woman. She's sitting with her back straight, her head is tilted up, and her shoulders are relaxed. She's silhouetted against a white spool of rayon silk. On the front of the matchbook, the text reads, Bimberg, aristocrat of rayon. And if you look at it being glamorous, then it's being marketed to a glamorous woman. But... Uh, a working-class woman who went into the factory every day, you know, at 7 o'clock and, and, you know, worked 8 to 10 hours, um, just isn't going to have, well, the money to buy that which is glamorous. This matchbook ad was created by the J.P. Bimberg Corporation, a German-owned company. At the time this ad was made, the Bimberg Corporation had a rayon plant in the city of Elizabethton in the northeast corner of Tennessee. In its heyday, the Bimberg plant, along with the Glonstoff plant, another German-owned factory, employed hundreds of local women. Unlike the woman in the matchbook ad, the Elizabethan women didn't have much leisure time, and they probably never felt much like aristocrats. Both of those plants, particularly when they started in the 20s, had as many, if not more, women than men for a lot of the jobs. Now, the women, um, the women were not as passive as perhaps the uh, manufacturers wanted them to be and were, you know, participants in the strikes. Today, we're learning about how the rayon industry came to Elizabethton, the women who worked in the rayon factories, and what those women did when they got sick of the industry's strict rules and low pay. In the 20s, Appalachia and Appalachian manufacturing was tied to international corporations. It was global, you know, tied to um, certainly global market trends in terms of, you know, what would sell, what wouldn't sell, you know, political events, you know, for example. So there were those global ties. In 1925, in the town of Elizabethton, workers were pouring the concrete foundations of the American Bemberg Rayon Factory. Three years later, the German-owned Glonstoff plant would open up alongside Bimberg. At the time, these two companies were leading producers of rayon, a semi-synthetic fiber made from wood pulp and cotton linters. Bimberg used rayon for trendy clothing products, often marketed to women. Um, the finer um, yarn was used to make dresses and hosiery, and that's the, the material 
that was considered more glamorous. It had a sheen. It was an alternative to silk, okay, hence fake silk. It wasn't odd to see foreign companies like Bemberg and Glanstoff in Appalachia in the 1920s. Owners of European synthetics companies were moving more and more of their manufacturing to Appalachia, which had two important resources, the large amounts of water needed for synthetics processing and cheap labor. Members of the, the management of American Bemberg were looking for someplace suitable, and so that meant someplace that had water, hence the Watauga River. And in the mid-20s, agriculture in eastern Tennessee was not as prosperous as it had been in previous years, and so people were in need of wages. Elizabethton became a prime site. At the time the plants were built, Local men and women were trying to make ends meet by combining farming with wage-earning jobs. Women often worked part-time as launderers or servants while helping to raise children and farm at home. Far from isolated, many of these women participated in flapper culture, adopting short haircuts and independent attitudes. They wanted to find ways to be more self-reliant, to get off the farm. And so when the Glanstoff and Bemberg plants opened, hundreds of them applied for positions. For women who were very independent and working in the rayon factories was a boon to them. And so that enabled, that, you know, enabled, I guess, a kind of economic freedom and a, and a kind of independence, particularly for single women. Um, for the 12 or 13 or 14-year-old, the money more than likely was a contribution to the family. Most of the women in the factories were under 21, and many of them were young girls, hired illegally. Collectively, they held nearly one-third of the jobs at the Bemberg plant and about half the jobs at the Glanstoff plant. And while the men were made to work in the plant's hazardous chemical divisions, the women were assigned to the textile division. Reeling, where the um, yarn was reeled onto spools, was by and large female work inspection, where the thread was inspected or the yarn was inspected, was by and large female work. While many of the women were proud to be supporting themselves and their families, the work conditions in the factories were harsh and dangerous. The problem, of course, standing on their feet all day on concrete floors, of the sound, you know, being exposed to the, I guess, sound pollution, uh, and then also breathing in the dust you know, from the yarn being, you know, reeled onto the spools. I'd say working in those plants was physically demanding um, and taxing. And keep in mind that one didn't have the freedom to get up or to leave, say, one's reeling station. Oh, I have to take a break. Oh, I have to use the restroom. That was all controlled. If women took bathroom breaks that were longer than the allotted time, their pay was docked. And if they took what the management considered to be too many trips to the bathroom, they were fired. And despite working the same hours as the men, the women's paychecks were always lower. They knew they were getting shortchanged. Things came to a head in March 1929. Women in the Glonstoff Inspection Department had been asking for a raise for weeks. 
When their request was refused yet again, they all decided to walk out of the plant. The next day, the rest of the Glanstoff workers joined them. Five days later, many Bemberg workers came out as well. Both men and women wanted wage increases, and the women wanted an end to the hard rules of the factories. They worked with the United Textile Workers, a national union, to represent their cause. Plant management, however, was strictly and strongly anti-union. So their idea is they wanted no union uh, whatsoever there. The plant managers convinced the county court to pass injunctions prohibiting strike activities anywhere near the plants, injunctions that the strikers ignored. By May, the terrified plant management and town officials asked the state government for help. The governor at the time, Henry Horton, nationalized the guard, and it came in. And there are videos, uh, film, showing National Guard at their machine gun nests, you know, overlooking the road into the plants. And it's pretty, you know, it's pretty scary. Regardless of the danger, women strikers were out every day, holding a critical role as picketers. We can backtrack where the violence came in. It was really on preventing or trying to prevent um, persons from scabbing or strike-breaking, okay, Um, because not everyone agreed with with the walkout. So those who favored strike activity would try to prevent um, others from going in to the plants. The women staged sit-down strikes on narrow mountain roadways to prevent replacement workers from being bussed in. They teased and cursed at guardsmen and shamed strike breakers. They also helped to conduct silent marches through the main streets of Elizabethton. There were three or four strike parades where the workers um, marched so the workers didn't say anything or sing any tunes. Um, they held up signs. They did often march with flags, U.S. flags, and hence was this claiming of space. You know, this is our space. As much as it is yours referring to the elites, um, the business elites and the civic elites who supported the, who supported the management. The strike lasted until May 23rd, when an agreement was reached that prohibited Bemberg and Glanstoff from discriminating against union members and required the companies to reinstate all former employees. However, soon after the workers returned to the plants, hundreds of male and female union members were blacklisted. The plants won and the workers lost. Uh, The unions certainly was weakened. It sort of remained underground. The management of the plants in the meantime established what labor historians um, and business historians um, you know, call the company union. So these were you know, worker organizations that supposedly were for the workers but were really controlled by the management. Many of the women who had been fired went back to domestic work, and some continued to be union organizers. Decades after participating in the strikes, A woman named Bessie Edens told an interviewer, I knew I wasn't going to get to go back, and I didn't care. I didn't. I've never regretted it in any way. And it did help the people, and it helped the town and the country. The strikes do seem to have triggered changes that reached beyond East Tennessee. After the start of the Elizabethan strikes, 
hundreds of textile mill strikes erupted across North Carolina and South Carolina. Historians speculate that these strikes might have been inspired by what happened in Elizabethton. The Elizabethton strikes and the Southern textile strikes that followed soon after gave women an opportunity to behave in ways they hadn't before, an opportunity to be loud, rude, and in a way, glamorous. In their bobbed haircuts and fashionable chemise dresses, women like Edens held down picket lines and confronted National Guardsmen while maintaining an air of carefree confidence that rivaled the looks of women in Bemberg's matchbook and magazine ads. Recollections is a production of the B. Carol Reese Museum, a unit of the Center for Appalachian Studies and Services at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Lynch Thomason, with assistance from the staff at the Reese Museum. Special thanks to WETS for the use of their studios. You can find us at etsu.edu slash recollections, and remember to subscribe to never miss an episode.